0: Welcome. I'm here with Darren Manley, the Solution Business Manager at Daikin, and he's going to be talking to us about the ambient loop heating concept and how it can help reduce energy consumption and cut carbon emissions.
1: Well, here at Daikin, we've been looking at ambient loops for about a year and a half now and how this can uh, be a really useful technology for, uh, for new build uh, developments. And really what an ambient loop is, it's a, it's a type of heat network. It's a network that can serve either an individual building or it can be uh, applied site-wide as as any heat network. The ambient loop itself is simply water pipe work that's used to transfer energy across a network of of connected loads. So typically, we'd be looking to circulate water through the network of pipes at around 10 to 30 degrees. Um, The actual temperature would depend on the type of heat source that's being used. But when we talk about ambient loops, it really can be broken down into sort of three key components. You've got the the low carbon heat source. You've got the ambient temperature energy distribution, which is the loop itself. And then you've got the means to actually deliver the required heat within each uh, demise or within each building. So then you have a a localized heat pump. So uh, the real sort of key of ambient loop systems and their real raison d'etre is to be able to use low-carbon heat sources. So by using an ambient temperature to distribute energy across a network, it's really the key that opens the door to using a, a wider range of low-carbon technology. For example, that can be geothermal, it could be surface water, it could be recovered heat, or it could be uh, an air source heat pump, which is a solution we see a lot of interest in certainly around London.
0: Thanks very much. And um, there's been uh, quite a lot of debate around fourth generation uh, heat networks and fifth generation. I'm, I'm just wondering, can you help kind of clarify the difference between the two? Yeah, sure. I mean,
1: um, from, from where I sit in, in the solutions business at Dyke, we see the requirement for, for both types of system. Um, so fourth generation is really what you'd expect of a of current heat network. So it's probably operating somewhere between 60 and 80 degrees around the network, delivering to heat interface units within, within the building. When we look at ambient loops, it's really all about the temperature. So rather than distributing at this, this still relatively high temperature of 60 to 80 degrees, an ambient temperature will deliver its energy or its heat around the network at somewhere around about 25 degrees on average. And the, the key benefit of that really is that it eliminates heat losses within the distribution network. You know, when you consider you've got 60 to 80 degrees running up a riser, it's uh, a big contributing factor to overhe- overheating issues we see in sort of new, well-insulated properties. By swapping to an ambient loop, a key advantage, like I say, is we mitigate that risk of overheating by eliminating that heat loss. So the main difference is really the temperature.
0: And of course, if you have a fifth generation and a heat pump, you also need a storage vessel on this, in the system as well. Is there any risk that there will be heat losses in that storage yeah so when when we have the
1: fifth generation system or the the ambient loop as i said you need a a device connected on the end to to increase the temperature to the point that you want to use it so for space heating that might be somewhere between 35 to 55 degrees but for hot water you're heating a a hot water storage vessel that's inside each apartment you're right that there are heat losses from the cylinder but what manufacturers like us provide are well-insulated cylinders with very low standing heat losses. In fact, the measured heat loss of one of the typical cylinders is about 1.2 kilowatts over 24 hours. And that's based on a a 45 degree temperature difference between the storage temperature of the water and the ambient temperature. That's the standard. But in reality, that would mean your your apartment is only 10 degrees. So although the losses by the values that are stated by manufacturers are as low as they can be, in reality, those losses are, are lower because apartments are typically 20, 21 degrees.
0: And have you done a calculation on what the distribution losses are compared to water storage? Is it, is it similar or you found that there's more losses in, the, in distribution through the pipes in a, in a fourth generation network? Well, I mean, that, that work, luckily enough, has been done for
1: us. And the, the BRE actually wrote a paper on distribution losses in existing sites, where they had 12 months worth of monitored data for, for I, think, uh, I think it was 10 sites across the UK. The findings of that report actually led the BRE to increase the, the default distribution loss factor within within SAP. So if, if you consider SAP 2012, where you know SAP is the standard assessment procedure for demonstrating compliance um, to, to Part L for residential build, the distribution loss factor of heat network was 1.05. That's less than 5% heat losses on the back of the BRE's uh, paper they've concluded the default factor should be increased to a distribution loss factor of 2 which is equivalent to 50% losses. losses of course there's the caveat there that if the systems delight designed in line with CP1 so City's code of practice feed networks that drops to 1.5 but, but that said that's if this if the design's compliant to CP1 the BRE are still assuming a default of 33% heat losses when we look at the ambient loop, considering you're going to have somewhere in the region of 20 to 25 degree water inside an insulated pipe running inside the fabric of the building, the losses are virtually zero. Within SAP, it's quantified and the BRE advised to use a distribution loss of 1.05. So you can see there's a, almost a 28% difference in the losses, just according to the BRE.
0: Is there the supply chain to support the expected growth in heat networks in the UK? How will the industry ensure that there won't be a school shortage? So there, there's a couple of answers here. So you know, if I if I took our typical ambient
1: loop application where we're looking at your low-carbon heat source may be some centralized air source heat pumps, and then your loop is relatively maintenance-free, but then your your main bulk of, let's say, site visits are going to be the annual inspections on your in-apartment heat pump. So when it comes to the central plant, this is already a known quantity. So companies like like Daikin, uh, many others, they already have either their own service business or they work with a network of service partners. And effectively, uh, a central plant air source heat pump is just a central plant chiller working in reverse. So the maintenance activity is almost identical. The big challenge then comes for the maintenance of the in apartment heat pump. So if you have a development of 500 apartments, that's 500 inspections once a year every year so that's really the first point is the systems are designed so there's no um, requirement for any maintenance on the F-gas side of things so you simplify the maintenance through design as far as possible and yes then you're right then it comes down to training installers to make sure there is that that skill in the market i mean from our side we underpin that by offering service contracts directly but over time we will be training more and more installers but just on a slightly wider point about heat pumps, because outside of the ambient loop, there's there's currently a, a boom on individual air source heat pumps in both new build and retrofit. And this is really where we need a, an industry-wide approach to training and installation. And that's actually something that, that's underway at the moment and is being led by the Heat Pump Association in, in consultation with Bayes.
0: So it's a collective effort,
1: really. Exactly. It's not just a one manufacturer. Uh, effort. It's a it's an industry effort, and it needs to be coordinated by, you know, people like the Heat Pump Association, which are our our trade association in the air source market.
0: My other question was, I suppose in the in the future with hius which are slightly simpler technology, if you want to upgrade your development, you would be looking at the central plant to upgrade. Whereas with an upgrade on a on an ambient loop, where the the heat pumps, some of the more complex plant is in each of the apartments. How do you ensure that there's an opportunity to upgrade or replace the uh, heat pumps if necessary? Over time, with any
1: technology, it tends to always get better rather than getting worse. So, at the end of life, in you know, let's say 10, 15 years' time, I mean, we work on a working life of 15 years, but when it comes to that point where they, they need to be replaced, the ambient loop actually allows, uh, let's say, um, units can be easily interchanged because every apartment unit it simply has a a flow and return connection to the main loop so typically a 28 mil connection and it's just taking a set flow rate from that loop so that unit could be replaced with a new dyking unit or it could be replaced with any other unit from any other manufacturer that offers a a similar product so there is that interchangeability it's a very similar principle that we see with um, water called vrv solutions where if you took a shopping center you may have a condenser loop maintained by the landlord and each uh, retail unit they give a heat exchanger with a flow rate and a temperature it's very much the same thing but on a smaller capacity scale but higher quantity
0: and, and i suppose there'll be there'll be some kind of contracts potentially with the occupants in the future so they they know how efficient their machines are
1: um yes i mean the, these are things that can be built into products as standard so for, for example if you have your your in apartment heat pump um, that has an ethernet connection on it. So if they connect that to their, to their router, they get remote control and visualization via an app. In that app, you can actually see the energy consumed in each mode. So if you have a heating and hot water unit, you can see the energy consumed and produced in those modes. And so if you have the cooling option, it shows you that, that visualization as well. So that's already possible in the products, um, And then at a higher level, you have uh, the option of uh, remote APIs where third-party systems can integrate across the cloud to review and
0: monitor information. So, for example, if you're a landlord renting a lot of apartments, you could be keeping an eye on all of those all those heat pumps uh, remotely?
1: Yeah, exactly. If you had, the, let, let's say, within a, even within a building, if you had 100 apartments in a building, you could have a, a landlord's connection. So each unit is connected. And then the maintenance company can have remote visualisation of each unit and they can also read and write uh, values so that gives you interesting opportunities when you have uh, let's say a fault developed or an end user didn't understand the operation then remotely somebody could reset their unit or do some remote fault finding
0: and in the uk at the moment do you see ambient uh, loop systems being used primarily for heating in apartments or, or heating and cooling or are you seeing them being connected to other building types of other than apartments with cooling loads where you can actually share the heating and cooling loads
1: that's actually a, a very interesting point uh, and of course all things heat pump at the moment are being led by london because of the uh, the gla advising through their um, energy assessment guidance uh, The energy assessors can use the 0.233 value published in sap10 so we do see a, a lead coming from london certainly at the moment on investigations into heat pumps what can become very interesting like you say is When you have a mixture of heating and cooling devices connected to the same network so a big advantage of the ambient loop system is the water in the ambient loop is a is let's say a a neutral temperature around about 20 25 degrees so you may have an apartment with a cooling load you may have an apartment that's simultaneously in in hot water or you may have a hotel or you may have uh, some retail or commercial office space in that same building for every unit that's in cooling its waste product is more water that it rejects to the loop for every unit that's in hot water or heating its waste product is cool water so you get this natural heat recovery that can take place across the system of course that can only accurately be quantified by MEP consultants doing some some uh, simulations and modeling but it's certainly a, an opportunity that's there and then all your heat source is doing is really just creating a balance between the loads
0: so at the moment, you can see your ambient loop system being used primarily for heating.
1: We certainly have projects where we look at heating and hot water. Of course, when, once you go over a, a certain value per uh, per square metre, then the expectation can become cooling. Or indeed, the consultant may have issues uh, with uh, the TM59 assessment where actually the specification of the apartment doesn't require cooling. But because of the construction orientation and solar gain, they may actually have to find themselves putting cooling in. So. This is a real a real strong point for the ambient loop system with the apartment heat pump because actually your infrastructure in the building is exactly the same. Your pipe diameters are the same. Your central plant, in fact, is the same. The only difference is the, the box, the, the uh, in-apartment heat pump. Instead of a heating-only model, it becomes a heating and cooling model, which has a, a minimal price difference. So when you look at the, the economics and the and the capex of each system, yes, you can say that the ambient loop system just to do heating and hot water is, is notably more expensive than the traditional system of a boiler, CHP, and HIU. But when you compare the heating and cooling system, it actually becomes cheaper than the traditional system of a HIU with a with a boiler and a, and a CHP, plus the combination of a chiller and a CIU as well. So effectively you get a heating, you can have a heating and cooling system from the same
0: unit. Obviously, the temperatures are going to rise and it's getting more and more difficult to keep buildings within comfortable temperatures in the UK climate and elsewhere. Do you foresee more cooling requirements, particularly from the apartment side of things? We're aware of uh, the GLA's
1: requirement is to reduce cooling and it should be, it should be the, the final stage. But the reality is we see an increase uh, because of ba- buildings failing TM59. In fact, we, we see buildings, um, you know, some social housing apartments where they're requiring cooling. Um, so you would never put that in by specification, but they're having to do that purely to uh, to pass the TM59 requirements. So there's there's sort of two two reasons for it. Is one is is the specification because at the end of the day uh, these properties are sold on the open market, so your specification has to achieve a certain level. But also from uh, building performance point of view, you can't sell something that's uh, overheating. It does. It is a real plus point because it's, it's one of the uh, Achilles heels of your, your typical fourth-gen network. You're, you're distributing this high-temperature water around the building, um, so that means you are in, incurring these heat losses, as we mentioned before. So then the, the designer has to then look at mitigate, mitigating those heat losses. So actually, you're, you're burning a fossil fuel to create heat. You're losing it on its way from its plant room to the apartment, and then you're having to specify additional Ventilation, or in some cases, mechanical cooling, to cool down your your corridors to make them uh, acceptable temperature. And of course, the advantage of the ambient loop is you're stopping that happening at source by by working to the lower temperature.
0: And you touched on the costs, saying that the capital cost would be a little bit higher with heat only, uh, but with cooling involved, then the cost will become lower.
1: That's correct. It's a it's a phenomenon that's been seen ever since we started selling uh, domestic heat pumps in earnest in the UK, which really kind of started um, in about 2006 uh, with Daikin and several other manufacturers starting to sell individual heat pumps in earnest. And, uh, you know, the question you always got was, why should I buy a heat pump instead of a, a new combi boiler? Um, and, and you can never argue that on the, on the capital cost because uh, a boiler is always cheaper than a heat pump. So it, the, the same thing is true when you look on a, on a building scale. For the same capacity, your boiler is always cheaper than your heat pump. But of course, your boiler cannot do cooling. So it's just an analogy that, that, that follows through.
0: And what are the other benefits of ambient loop systems?
1: Well, uh, a key advantage of the ambient loop system where we're using heat pumps connected to it is actually delivering a, a fully electrified solution. So when we look at the, the rapid decline in the grid carbon emission factor, uh, we've seen over the last years, the numbers being quoted drop from, 0.519, as within current regulations, down to 0.233 in SAP 10, and then even further to 0.136 in, in SAP 10.1. So it can be desirable to uh, both eliminate gas from site um, in favour of electricity. And the ambient loop enables this. So there's no need to burn any fossil fuels um, locally. So that really gives you sort of two further benefits is one, it's it's delivering a low carbon approach, which can help the developer by reducing any uh, exposure to a carbon offset payment to local authority. But it's also future proofing that building against any further reductions in the in the carbon intensity of grid electricity. So while it may be reducing to 0.136 now, it's a a widely known fact that um, the grid is continuing to reduce and it's on a trajectory towards zero carbon. So by fitting an electric system now, you're reducing not only the carbon footprint today, but also in the future.
0: I understand that some of these systems are going through planning at the moment. So when can we expect to see them in operation?
1: Yeah, so this is always the golden question. So we've been working very hard on these systems probably about the last uh, year or so. So, of course, there's a delay in when we launch a product into the market, the time it takes it uh, to, be, to be specified before it finally gets to site. So what we're really looking at is the first installations to be happening towards the, the latter quarter of uh, this calendar year and then certainly over uh, the first half of next year. And of course, once we have these, we'll be uh, keeping eye on them and, and putting case studies into the market. Um,
0: so are there any challenges with the ambient
1: systems? Um, yes, I mean, every system has its challenges. I mean, the first one is uh, it will solve itself over time, it is, is really resistance to change. Um, the market has been used to using combustion for for many, many years. So there's a, there's a step change when we come to heat pumps, and then there's a second step change when we, We look at um, utilising ambient networks. Uh, That's one. But when we look more specifically about an ambient loop that uses um, central plant air source heat pumps, there's some some considerations there as well that that need to be addressed. And that really comes to actually the the size of the air source heat pump. Of course, these these units will make noise because they have fans moving a lot of air. So careful consideration needs to be given to where you can locate them on the building. So all these challenges are solvable, and that's something we we work with consultants every day to solve. So whether that's by looking at acoustic enclosures for the units, or whether it's for looking at a more modular approach with smaller capacity heat pumps across a wider area on the building.
0: So yeah, there's, there's more complexity that consultants will have to understand in this area.
1: I mean, yes, I mean it's relatively straightforward, but it's really just the logistics of, of where to locate plants um, and meeting the the local planning requirements on on the on ambient noise levels. So one of the big ones we get is where the GLA say about uh, future-proof against heat network connection. Because under heat network, if you according to the GLA, uh, it's only high temperature. So they, they don't seem to be considering anything outside high temperature. And they, they they can't seem to grasp the fact. certainly from where I sit, that energy is energy. You know, the, the temperature is just one of the details. So they seem to think that, or some people seem to think that a high-temperature network not compatible with an ambient temperature network
0: how how do we ensure that ambient systems can be connected to fourth generation heat networks um where the temperatures are are higher is that is that straightforward uh
1: yes i mean it's actually simpler than than most people may think Um, so if you have a a standard uh fourth generation network and pick a temperature let's say it's running at 70 degrees and you wanted to future-proof a building against connection to that you'd Allow space within the building for the installation of a heat network substation, even if you're running your building at 70 degrees. Well, if you have a building that's designed around an ambient loop, the requirement is exactly the same. And actually, the equipment is, is virtually the same. So you would still allow the space for a heat network substation. But then actually, when it came to point of installation, the selection requirements for that heat network substation would be to reduce the temperature across the substation from the 70 degrees of the network down to the 30 degrees of the loop. And this is actually a, a standard product that's available from heat network substation
0: suppliers. And then within your ambient loop, you could offer cooling and, and heating just through one set of pipes?
1: It, exactly, because uh, it may seem counterintuitive to take a high temperature to reduce it and then, then increase it again. But, but the reality is the heat absorbed into the ambient loop actually accounts for 85 to 90% of the total energy of the system. The energy consumed on the in apartment heat pump accounts for about ten to fifteen percent. So what you would do is, when you needed to heat the ambient loop, you would absorb heat across the heat network substation um, to maintain the loop temperature at twenty five to thirty degrees, allowing the whole system to work. Of course, if those units then went into to cooling, um, you would stop absorbing heat from the ambient loop, and then you would reject that heat across the uh, the heat pump uh, that was that was still installed, or a, or a dryer cooler indeed. Um, so you still have that that dual benefit of being able to heat and cool from the the same system, and you also still have the benefit that you're you're not uh, accepting any heat losses uh, across the uh, network within the building because it's still running at the ambient temperature.
0: Thanks very much, Darren. Uh, no problem. You're welcome. Clearly, 2021 is going to be a key year for this technology, and we await the installation of your first system with interest. Thanks a lot.